Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Strike Talk. Legend has it that Albert Einstein once said, if bees disappear off the face of the earth, humans would have only four years to live. There is absolutely zero proof that Einstein actually said this, but it's definitely something he could have said. And it's entirely relevant to the two strikes that have now been inflicted on our business by the AMPTS. Here's why. The life of a common worker bee is short, just under 40 days on average, but it is an impressive example of the dignity of work. In that tiny window, a bee will visit over 1,000 flowers, and he'll produce just under a teaspoon of honey, and then he'll die. By contrast, a Greenland shark can live up to 512 years, and sea sponges can reach 11,000 years, thus proving what everyone in Hollywood already knows, that it's easier to be a shark or a sponge than a worker. The mayfly, whose name in Greek literally means short-lived, only gets 24 hours on Earth before checking out all of which underscores the outsized role that longevity plays in the choice of one's career. If you sign up to play football in the NFL, you can expect your career to be over, on average, in 3.3 years. This number is skewed slightly by field goal kickers, who have a career average of nearly five years. Running backs average only 2.6 years. Head coaches average 3.2 years. In that game, you have to make your money while you can. Your next offseason might be the rest of your life. The same is true of NBA and NHL players, each of whom average four and a half years before they are cycled out. Flight attendants, those patient people handing you warm nuts, their average career span is seven years. Massage therapists last only six. Alaskan king crab fishermen last, on average, 1.2 years. So do TV meteorologists. But writing, we all assumed, would be forever. Writers get better as they age. Their knowledge of craft only deepens. So too does their ability to navigate the business itself, to read the room. We're not running backs. We should get decades, right? Wrong. The average writer will have 12 actual money-making years in his or her career. 12. To put that in context, that's fewer money-making years than you would get if you were a rodeo clown, a lion tamer, or a fucking sword swallower. So yes, we need to do well in our good years, well enough to sustain us. So do actors, producers, directors, editors, DPs, set decorators, stunt people, first ADs, teamsters, caterers, and everyone else who makes movies possible. We are all worker bees, guaranteed nothing, trying to hit as many flowers and produce as much honey as we can for as long as we can. Today, I'm thinking about a moment I witnessed when I directed for the first time 20 years ago 
a tiny little movie called Shattered Glass. Directing is a humbling experience. Directing your first is exponentially more so. Every second of every day, you realize how completely dependent you are on your crew. They all know more than you do. They understand the nuts and bolts of film, filmmaking on a level you'll never get to. And if they don't bring their best at all times, you're dead. So there I was on a soundstage in Montreal, summer of 2002, on the fifth take of our 10th setup of the day. The actors were on their marks, sound was rolling, I was just about to say action, when I saw my gaffer, John Lewin, lean in quietly to move a bounce card about an inch to the right. No one had told him to do it. No one would have noticed had he not done it. He didn't get paid more for doing it. He just knew that that tiny incremental adjustment would make the lighting on Peter Sarsgaard better and therefore help the movie and me. And he cared about that in a quiet, artful, professional way. He was, in that moment, a worker bee, making honey as worker bees do. I was so moved, I nearly cried. Could barely say action, my heart was full. Moments like that one occur every day on every movie I work on. They all stay with me. They're why I would never, at the point of a gun, take a film by credit. We all made that movie, together, hundreds of us, all independent contractors moving job to job, doing our best and hoping to get hired again. I don't think Carol Lombardini can possibly understand that. She's been at the AMPTS for decades, as was her predecessor, Nick Counter. She never has to pitch. She never has to write anything on spec. She never has to compete with 12 colleagues for a job or worry about late pay or audit her employer for hidden profits. She doesn't need residuals in order to survive. She'll never be paper teamed with a coworker, thus cutting her pay in half. She'll never have to do her job while looking for her next one. And she hasn't yet been told that a condition of her employment is the reality that she will one day be replaced by AI. In short, although her impact on our livelihoods is profound, she has zero understanding of what the career of a writer, actor, producer, or grip feels like. More, a key part of her job lies in telling us every three years how little she thinks our careers are worth, which brings me back to bees and what they produce. Honey, it turns out, is kind of a superfood. A teaspoon of it, the life's work of one bee, can sustain a human life for 24 hours. Honey sustains brain activity. Honey once saved the African continent from starvation. It contains natural antibiotics. It has no expiration date because it's already been digested. And if that's not enough, the term honeymoon began in ancient days when brides and grooms ate honey right after marrying for fertility. Honey is awesome. All we want to do is produce it, and most of us don't get long to do so. Carol, you may never understand why, but that stings. To discuss how that pain is being felt all across our industry, I'm joined today by three of my favorite worker bees ever. Please meet the DP, editor, and producer who saved my life on Shattered Glass 20 years ago and gave me a directing career. Mandy Walker, Jeff Ford, and Adam Marums. Hello, bees. <laughs> Hello. What we're here to talk about today is what you've seen in the last 20 years since we all made that movie together. What big picture changes you're seeing and what you see coming down the road. Jeff, I want to start with you because you went into the Marvel Universe where you've made a billion movies for them. What looks different now compared to 20 years ago? The first thing that comes to mind is just the sheer amount of material that's being made today compared to the way it used to be. I mean, making movies and television is difficult. It takes a lot of creativity and it takes time and effort and, and the, everything has to kind of come together to happen. It's expensive. It's a risk proposition every time out. And it used to be that there was a lot to keep up with 
in features, you know, in theaters, but also on linear television. Well, <laughs> you aren't keeping up anymore. It's a deluge of content that's been created, as they call it. I, I don't prefer that word, but but that's what it that's what how it's being, you know, um, assessed because there is so much of it that it's almost like, you know, it's just being stacked and stacked and stacked. So if you want to catch up with the latest amazing show, there's six of those that are going to be recommended to you every week. And a lot of the work is excellent. I'm not um, disparaging it, but the amount of it is is astonishing compared to, to how much there used to be. Mandy, tell me what looks different to you. I mean, uh, Shattered Glass was your first American movie and uh, you've made so many since. What feels different now, uh, particularly through the eyes or forgive me, the lens of a DP? Well, for me, it's mostly the advance of technology moving because we shot Shattered Glass on film, on negative, and um, most films now are shot digitally. And so there was a move to digital um, filmmaking and how that changed, the way that you work with the director and how that changes the way we work on set because now everybody has a monitor with an image that is so precise and clean, whereas before we had to communicate or I had to communicate to a director, it's going to look like this and, and be able to explain something visually, um, whereas now everybody's seeing what the camera's capturing very clearly all the time. And then the other thing for me is, well, there's lighting technologies which has moved into LED and DMX boards and you can now dim lights from an iPad, whereas before you'd physically be getting up a ladder to change a gel or putting on a scream or something. And then the other thing is moving into um, virtual production, which uh, includes LED walls and virtual camera, which I've had some experience with lately. But I've made it um, my mission to make sure that my job as a director of photography is not diluted by any of these things. And I'm, I've been involved in the MyTech Council for the Academy and the ASC, the Cinematographers Society, to make sure that um, these jobs are not given over to VFX because every film now, there it used to be that there was a minimal tiny visual effects on a film of the size of Shattered Glass and I don't actually know if we had any. I'm not, I can't remember. But if we did, we had a teeny tiny bit of, of augmentation of, of a background when we were in Washington or something like that, I think. And now it's a very big part of filmmaking and the VFX supervisors are on the film before me. So my relationship with them is very important. So for me, that's the biggest thing is the technology. You know, I just want to tell a story about you, Mandy, because... You know, when you direct for the first time, you know you have no idea what you're talking about and no idea what you're doing. At least I didn't. And the first day I ever met you, um, I remember bringing you uh, to my house and putting in a VHS. That's how long ago this was. A VHS of the movie you had just shot, Lantana. And I turned off the sound and I said, OK, take me through it shot by shot. How did you light it? What lens were you on, etc." And it, you know, it took hours to get through the movie in that way. And then when we went up to Montreal, I remember the day before we started shooting, you took me out uh, to the parking lot of the sound stages uh, where we were going to be working and you had three of your crew with you and one stood five feet away, one stood 10 feet away and one stood 20 feet away and you started handing me lenses. This is what it looks like through a 40. This is what it looks like through a 50. This is what it looks like through a 100. The reason that, um, that you were the right DP for me, other than the fact that you're brilliantly talented, 
is that you were willing to educate me without punishing me. And I needed that so badly from all three of you. Adam, we have talked a lot on this show uh, over the course of the last 22 weeks about what it's like to be a producer uh, in Hollywood and how that has changed. Tell me what it's like now compared to 20 years ago. Well, first, I want to pick up on something that Jeff said, because I think for me, one of the biggest changes is that due to the massive number of projects being made, the quality of the people working with us has really decreased on average. You know, you have uh, places, uh, I won't name names, where, you know, you're with a crew and someone's a department head and you see they basically were the, the best person, the best boy, best gal for two shows and now they're a gaffer or they were a PA and now they're the production supervisor. And I think the other thing that's kind of tied in for that as a producer is that there are no middle-level movies anymore. They're either giant tentpole movies, large-scale, expensive uh, movies that merit that, you know, let's say world events. And then they're very teeny movies. There aren't really any movies anymore in the middle because it's very hard to make that economic model work because the crew is essentially bifurcated and the resources are bifurcated. Uh, and, you know, as a producer, it's much harder to have any impact in terms of trying to choose a project that maybe culturally does something, you know, like, it's really hard as a producer because it used to be more centralized, right? And I think maybe this is a good thing is that it's not just about L.A. or New York. That's a good thing. But the flip side is that there's a lot of content available to people like my 16-year-old and 18-year-old that doesn't get produced. It just comes in the world. So um, as a result, it's much more competitive. You get paid less. Uh, you're marginalized more. Uh, you, you don't get to even be pay or play, like frequently you can be paid to go away, you know, so, and, and that's really tough. So one of the things for me that's been good is I'm essentially a line producer. So my job is to try to help you realize your vision by bringing people like Mandy and Jeff and others to the table and trying to work it out. So that part of the business has oddly been better because I think people have decided to value producers who really know what they're doing and have experience and um, because the value proposition is good. You know, we're not, line producers don't make $2 million in a big piece of the back end. They get paid a, a salary much like a crew member, a higher salary, of course, but they have a job to do and they either do it well or don't do it. So Jeff, a 23-year-old kid at films, uh, going to film school comes to you and says, I want to be an editor. What advice would you give that person? Well, that happens a lot. And um, I talk to them every every time if they call i mean the advice i give usually the first thing i say is what are you passionate about what kind of material do you love like what kind of movies do you like if you want to make films and and i advise them try to try to work on that material i know it's hard to you know be discriminating when you're trying to break in but one of the things i think we forget sometimes is in this vast amount of production that's going on there's a lot of different things. There's reality television, there's linear television, there's uh, limited series, there's feature films, there's low budget features, there's horror films, there's comedies. All these things are very different, vastly different experiences if you're, if you're trying to be a, a filmmaker. So I always say, like, look for the material that's going to speak to your soul. Because the thing that's made me, uh, I've been lucky in that I've had a really good instinct in like syncing up with the material. Because if I got on something that I didn't care about, didn't believe in and didn't you know, couldn't put hundred percent myself percent of myself behind. I wouldn't have done a very good job. So for me, that's 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 how you 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 know you're successful is that you find stuff where you can 
where you can connect with it emotionally and, and work it and think of yourself as an artist. I mean, we talk about content and we talk about product and we talk about labor, all those things. It's, I mean, for me, it's not, it's, it's, my job is to be, is to lend my artistic sensibilities to a director to make a film and it's a work of art and it has to be, or else I don't want to watch it. That's why for me, AI will never be a factor in the conversation in terms of creativity, because I want to see what another human being made. And I want to know that up front. It's just like, I don't want to eat processed food. <laughs> you know, I want, I want whole foods. So I want to know where that's coming from. And that's what I advise young people to do is to chase that, chase the spirit of being an artist, even if you're a film, if, and, and a filmmaker, because I consider myself a filmmaker as well as an editor. I don't, I'm a, I love editing and that's what I do, but I also, as an editor have to work as a, I, sometimes I have to work as a director and talk to actors. Sometimes I have to work as a writer and pitch ideas. Sometimes I have to work as the actually actor and make and do the temp voice in the track. So, I mean, I'm doing all that stuff just the way that you're doing all that stuff when you're working as a writer or as a director. I mean, these lines are blurred. So anyway, my, my encouragement for, for people coming up is, is find your passion and be an artist. Mandy, what about you? I think I, I totally agree with Jeff. And the thing that I try and say to people is that my job is first as an artist and then a technician and also a politician and also a friend and a, and a collaborator. That That's what my job is. And it's like, you know, when we were talking, you were talking before about how when we were working together, we would go through the lenses and, and I would show them to you. And I also remember we spent our pre-production um, very well in, in planning the movie and how we were going to shoot the movie. But a lot of, I, I do remember these discussions with you, a lot of how I work with the director comes from an emotional reaction to storytelling. And, and, and sometimes you get a 40 mil lens because it feels right. And it feels right for what the character's going through at that time. And so I think it's intuitive. You have to have that intuition in terms of how you're showing an audience um, visually the story that you want to represent. And I think that that's one of the things that I tell people too. I say it's not about getting the latest camera or the coolest lens or some lighting effect. It's got to be right for storytelling. That's the main part of your job. And um, I feel like that that is an individual talent that that um, that you have to foster and that, that not everybody has. A lot of your job, if you're working with someone like me, is just encouragement. Um, there's such an emotional component to it. Not all directors need it. Um, I certainly did. And I got it from you and from Jeff and from Adam and from my first AD, Richard Fox. These are things AI can't do. Obviously, they have to do with, with personal connection. Uh, and I was very, very lucky um, that I had people like, like you guys on the movie. So I will tell my perspective um, on one of the stories from Shattered Glass. We had uh, a 28-day schedule. And um, day three was all day in a car. And, and when we were done shooting day three, I came up to you, Adam Marams, and I said, you better get me a 29th day because that was garbage. And you got me a 29th day. And we shot, we shot the car stuff at the tail end of, of the shoot. Um, that was just a director who had never shot any scenes in a car before. Is that your memory of it? That's pretty accurate. There was the step where I said, no way. And you said, come on, you know, I need your help solving problems, not, you know, just saying no. And I think the more important thing, which is what made me think of it, was that the reason we were able to reshoot it, and Mandy might remember this too, 
is that we had a little teeny, you know, $200,000 second unit that we had kept in the budget for Washington, D.C. And I called uh, Peggy Pridemore, who was a great, is a great location manager who specializes in Washington, D.C., who actually had met in South on another film when she was a coordinator on a show. And I said, let's put together this, this crew. And I think we reshot that down there. Didn't we shoot Hayden and Peter in a car in D.C.? Right. And then and then. Yeah. And so and then so we grew the little teeny second unit into a little bigger second unit, which we then made first unit. Right. And then if I recall, it was Mandy, you and me. Jeff, I'm not sure. I don't think you were there. We were running around pushing the camera carts from DuPont Circle to wherever. And, and every, almost every shot we did got in the movie. It was all, you know, it was literally like a teeny little thing that became, you know, I don't know, 10% of the film. The point being, AI couldn't have done any of that for me. You know, you need people when you are directing, you need people who can improvise and who have relationships with Peggy Pridemore or, or who think on their feet. Um, one other teeny story uh, from that movie, when we went back to DC, we were shooting a title sequence because we didn't have one budgeted in the movie. And it was Adam and Mandy and me in a white van. And we were just driving, we were just driving through DC and every, every once in a while I'd see something out the window and say, pull over. And Mandy would jump out and shoot it because we weren't permitted to shoot anything. It was Roger Corman time, except in DC. And that happened to be the day of the DC sniper. And we found, we were hearing on the radio that there was this guy running around DC shooting people. And, and we were in Bethesda and he was in Bethesda and, and he was in a white van. And I remember saying to you, Adam, we're done. I'm not shooting anymore today. And you said, yes, you are. And we got back in the van, we got back in the van and shot more footage um, because you knew we were never getting back to DC again. We just didn't have the budget. Thank God you did that because we used every single shot for that title sequence. <laughs> every frame. So Jeff, pre-strike, what were you seeing in terms of strains and stresses on people who edit for a living or on any other discipline in the film business? What was it looking like to you? When you talk about labor in the film business and you talk about it at all these levels as a writer, as a director, as an editor, as a cinematographer, as a line producer, most of these jobs, even though, you know, you're working for a day rate or a weekly or a, you're, you're on the term of the show, your brain is not working eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. That's in your brain 24-7. You're dreaming about it. You're thinking about it. You're you're actually mortgaging a little bit of your soul. And that's what they're that's what the that's what they're paying for. It's not just the same thing as making a widget, you know, as in a factory um for a period of time and you go home and, and you feel like you can leave it leave it behind. I don't know anybody on this call certainly can't leave it behind. <laughs> so I just want to set that up. And and by the way, I have assistants, you know, that I work with who are the same way, even though it's 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 a creative job, whether it looks it or not, that they care deeply about the film. It's their baby, just like it is for everyone's. And, and that's why I talk about art, because that's different. That's a different relationship to the work than if it's and then if it's just simply labor. This is a it's 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 different. So I have a lot of friends who are shut down right now, you know, editors who cannot work, uh, people who were in the midst of editing television shows and motion pictures, and they can't work right now because either those shows were caught in the middle because every movie I've ever done, uh, I think with maybe one exception has required additional photography, not out of a lack of 
foresight. It's simply movies are made that way. They always have been. You make the film, you make discoveries, you go back out, you get some more to shape that movie. It, editing can take you so far, but but filmmaking is an ongoing process at every level and at every stage of the process. Writing never stops. It's getting tough because as the months go by, I mean, these people aren't, they don't have enormous amount of savings in the bank to, to, to weather something like this. And they're all so good at their jobs that they, they're used to working end to end to end on projects because they're just the best in the world at it. And right now they can't work. And it's and 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 resting that entire bench of incredible artists and, and, and technicians is is a bummer. Mandy, what are you seeing in terms of the the, the world of DPs? Uh, the same thing. I mean, I know a lot of crew people that are really struggling at the moment. And when um, the strike was first called, I was in London actually doing additional photography for Snow White and we got shut down before we finished. And the, the thing for me was the camera assistants sent me a photo um, when they were taking all the gear back and there was like a run of camera trucks at Panavision. Everybody was coming back in the same time. And I saw the people from Panavision the other day in LA and they've been put on to two day weeks. And so it just affects everybody. It's like a lot of people are saying to me, you know, I, I scraped through COVID and I was just not ready for this. And, and uh, so it's having a big impact financially all the way down. One of the biggest things was the IA contract that got settled, you know, a couple of years ago, a year ago, whatever it was, it was a very, tenuous settlement there was a lot of and still is a lot of dissatisfaction with that settlement and i think the biggest thing from my point of view is that that it was trying to address not just economic issues but quality of life issues trying to address that thing that jeff was referring to where you know you're essentially working all these free hours either in your mind rent free you know or as in the case of many camera assistants many editorial assistants many production people you're doing that 16th, 17th, 18th hour unpaid because you're commuting or you've got stuff that's off, you know, that you want to do to make your job better, but you're not being paid for it. And one of the biggest issues that's a practical thing is that the, the meal penalties were changed to try to be a little, have a little more teeth in them to try to force production companies uh, to not uh, violate meal penalties all the time. Meal penalties basically uh, every six hours or so, it's supposed to be a meal, mandatory meal break, but you can sort of pay out of it. The studios are built to be incremental. They like to make small, positive changes where they can, but they're essentially looking at the same business model. What the writers and SAG are doing is somewhat revolutionary. And if you look at the history of labor in America, there have been many inflection points where what ultimately came out was somewhat revolutionary. But when you're in the throes of it, it's very hard to get there. There's a lot of... Um disgruntled people in terms of what we did achieve last in the last contract. And and I know that uh, nearly everybody thinks that we didn't go far enough and that we didn't hang out for, for what we really wanted. We need to have a streaming metric the way we have a box office. That's, you know, to me, non-negotiable. And, you know, who gets to see it and how limited that information is, the reality is there's so much mistrust and with respect to IA, if the writers in SAG can achieve that, that's going to have a huge impact on going forward. But you know, they're, they're, when you don't trust someone and they tell you they're crying poverty, it's really easy to point to the CEOs and say that's not true because look how much you're paying CEOs. But putting that aside, nobody can say that Oppenheimer didn't make money, that Barbie didn't make money. 
but no one has any idea what Netflix shows do well or do not. We've all probably been involved with streaming shows. I've at least been involved with a couple. They tell you, oh, yeah, it did really well. People watch it. That's it. There's no other information. I want to circle back to that moment with John Lewin and the bounce card that he moved by an incremental amount right before a take. I don't know if you remember that moment. I'm sure you see a million moments like that every time you work, which I found so moving because it spoke to me about how much people care about the movie. Talk about that a little bit. Does it change from small movies to big movies? No, because I think um, the thing for me is when I hire my crew, it's like casting and you've got to cast the right people that are going to want to be creatively involved. And I, I crew people that are not just technicians for the same reason I said before, is that I want people that believe in the film and believe in the story that we're telling and they want to give 110%. And that's why I personally always try involve all my team creatively and to say, you know, we're here working for Billy to make his film for him as much as we can bring our, you know, our talents and our specific profession the best, you know, of, of that that we can. But everybody on a film has a creative input, I think. And John Lewin moving that little bit of bounce board one inch is because he sees something and, as you say, he wants to make it better. And I, I wouldn't want to work with people that don't think like that. And I don't think, you know, just circling back also, what I was saying before about what the difference that's happening in my job, I do have a lot of people speaking to me and afraid of losing their creative input into a film because of AI. And so we as cinematographers are, are fighting right now to be involved in post-production and pre-production with um, the visual effects and the, the previs and the, the um what happens to the film afterwards with our images. And that, that, that's a fight that, that we're, we're having right now. But in my experience, it's got, gotten to be um, positive and, and, and the people that I'm working with have been very generous in involving me and understanding that um, my job as director of photography goes the whole way through from start to finish and it's not just on set. So I think that... Um, there's creative in everybody on that set. The person who's, you know, doing the clapperboard that realises that, you know, they, it's a quiet time and the actors are in a moment and they have to, you know, tiptoe around or does somebody need something? You know, the whole thing is 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 every single person is there for a reason to to, to support the director and the story and, and that you, you can't not have that. Don't make good films. You know, I was in very good hands with Adam and part of the expression of his caring for the movie was he was there to help me make the decision to hire you. And he was there to help me make the decision to hire Jeff. He was there to help me make the decision to hire Richard Fox, uh, our beloved first AD. Um, that's part of being a filmmaker too. You have to cast your crew as carefully as you cast your cast. And, and um, Adam made sure that I was in the hands of people who um, who were going to support me in every way possible. Adam actually taught me an expression, uh, the movie is the baby, and we must always protect the baby. And I, I felt so strongly about it, it became such a watchword for me that it actually um, became something I made an entire series about called The Last Tycoon. 
at Amazon, which was about how the movie is the baby. All of this is a, a long-winded way of saying, you guys like me just want to do the work and just want the work to be great. And you just want to you know, produce your whatever amount of honey you can produce in the time you have allotted to you. And, and you do it with exceptional care and, and you do it exceptionally well. And I, I've been the beneficiary of that uh, a couple times now. Adam, Jeff, any last words uh, for people out there listening? Talk to the uh, AMPTP and ask them to get us all back to work. If they can't commit to things financially, then try to deal with the principles underlying the asks. It's not only about money. Very true. I'm going to give a shameless plug for Shattered Glass because I think that's an interesting movie to take a look at. It's it's about what happens when, when you don't have gatekeeping and and norms and things that prevent you from making terrible mistakes and, and disinformation goes everywhere. It is an interesting uh, slice of life from, from you know, 20 years ago. It's very interesting to look at it today through the lens of what's happened to journalism and, and just media in general. We'll leave it there. Now you can see why I feel so fortunate to have had those people beside me in my directing career. They know that the movie is the baby in the same way that bees know that the colony is the baby. If you are hearing this episode, that means that SAG and the AMPTS have still not reached a settlement, which means I am obliged to remind them, and all of us, of a simple truth. Our industry is the baby, and we are its stewards. It was handed to us by the generations that preceded us. They made a lot of mistakes, but they also made The Godfather, The Grapes of Wrath, The Wizard of Oz, The Graduate, and Roots. They kicked down doors and told bold stories and entertained the world with American content that made America the cultural beacon of the world. It's not just our military might that makes the world pay attention to us. It's also our national obsession with story, drama, humor, pathos, and how well we express all that. The storytellers who birthed and raised our business did that for us. That's our debt. We pay it down by working our asses off, taking risks, behaving honorably, and most importantly, by co-parenting the baby. All of us, labor and management together. Birds do it, bees do it. Greenland sharks do it. I did it in making that first movie. I do it every day. Studios, SAG, it's your turn now. Trust one another, partner with one another, or we will all be shattered. I want to thank my beloved guests and my producers, David Farino and Hannah Baker. Please join me next week when my guests will be Conrad Hall, Verna Fields, and Polly Platt. This is Strike Talk. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.